Ahead of Passover, Jews all over the world changed sets of dishes, blowtorched their stoves, and of course, covered every last counter and corner with tinfoil. And don't even get me started on the toothpicks. So what matters now is, when did this crazy religion get its start? The bottom line is that the earliest evidence that I find is during the Hasmonean period. There's no evidence of Jewish practices related to Torah observance prior to that. That's Ariel University professor Jonathan Adler, who came to our Jerusalem office to speak about his new book, The Origins of Judaism. And while he hasn't yet found evidence for tinfoil-covered kitchen counters, at the end of our discussion, he does speak about the earliest evidence for the observance of Passover. And that matters now. Do you or your clients have a commercial collection matter that's going nowhere? The Sarachuk Law Firm specializes in the most challenging collection matters, whether it is a single matter or a portfolio of cases. They are based in New York with relationships around the world. Sarachuk's proprietary databases and tried and proven methods have earned them an unmatched reputation for success in getting their clients what they're owed. They work on a contingency fee basis, so they're only compensated when they succeed. The Sarachuk Law Team strongly supports Israel. You can reach the Sarachek team at www.sarachechlawfirm.com. That's S-A-R-A-C-H-E-K lawfirm.com or at 646-403-9775. The proceeding is an attorney advertisement and past results are no guarantee of future performance. Yonatan, thank you so much for joining me today in our Jerusalem office. Thank you for having me. Such a pleasure. And, you know, generally I ask people before we start diving into the topic, what matters now? Because it's all about current events, but we are going to talk about what mattered then. We're talking about, of course, the origins of Judaism. So what mattered then, Yonatan? Well, the question is, when is then? So uh, I I assume that this is what we're going to be talking about. The question uh, that I pose in my book is when did Judaism begin? Uh, And we'll have to speak about what we mean by Judaism, and uh, when we speak about when did it begin, how do we go about looking into that? But that's, that's the questions that we'll be talking about today. For sure. And what I like about your book is you're, of course, an archaeologist, and the book is in a way set up like an excavation. We're going top down like you have to do when you're at a dig. So what it seemed to me is that you're proving the earliest possible moment in which you have evidence for the practice of Judaism. So we're not finding it, of course, at Adam and Eve. What? Let's have a bit of a spoiler. What is the first moment of physical evidence of the practice of Judaism? Okay, so uh, I guess we'll start with the end, and then we'll go. We'll we'll we'll, we'll uh, move backwards uh, from there. Uh, the the bottom line is that the earliest evidence that I find is during the Hasmonean period, so uh, around the middle of the second century before the Common Era. Uh, So we're talking about 200 years before the destruction of the Second Temple. Uh, There's no evidence of Jewish practices uh, related to Torah observance prior to that. But maybe maybe we'll, 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 
walk this back a little bit and, and get a bit more into details. For sure. We need to, of course, define some terms as well. Exactly. Again, we're talking about Judaism, which is the human practice of the idea of Jewish people, the religion, shall we say. It's more of a sociological look. Is that fair to say? Ab absolutely. So a actually, what I'm looking at here is uh, the question of social history. I'm looking at the question of what people are actually doing. I'm not looking at the question of when does the Torah exist, right? Uh, so we can have a Torah that exists for many centuries before the regular people, the common people, are actually practicing it. And my interest is very specifically not in the question of when the Torah was written, when the Torah uh, was was um, you know came to be. My question is. When did the ordinary people, the people you would meet on the street, the farmers, the craftsmen, the homemakers, the, the ordinary people, when did they come to know about the Torah and actually put it into practice in their daily lives? One of the things that scholars already in the 19th century recognized was that when we look uh, through the Hebrew Bible, the Tanakh, um, we don't seem to find people observing the laws of the Torah, right? So we don't find anyone, for example, fasting on Yom Kippur, on the Day of Atonement. We don't find people, um, you know, we don't find ordinary people keeping Shabbat. We find prophets that are that are railing against people not keeping Shabbat. We don't find people that are actually keeping Shabbat. We hear about King David building a palace. Uh, we never hear about him affixing mezuzot on his doorposts. We never hear about any of the, the figures in the, the Hebrew Bible uh, putting on tefillin. Right? So, so the, or the dietary laws, for that matter. Right? We don't hear about anyone abstaining from eating pig or, or seafood. These are things that we don't find in the Hebrew Bible. And already from the 19th century, scholars of the Hebrew Bible have noticed that we don't find this in the Hebrew Bible. Their assumption was that this all began in the Persian period. So we're talking about the middle of the 5th century before the Common Era, uh, after the after the destruction of the first temple, the Jews return to Judea and establish a new uh, a new province of Yehud, where uh, Jerusalem is rebuilt, a temple is rebuilt. So this is the second temple, according to the stories that we find in the Hebrew Bible, books like uh, Ezra and Nehemiah. And the story that we find in the books of Ezra and Nehemiah is that there was a figure named Ezra that came from Babylonia, and he came to Jerusalem with a Torah Moshe, a Torah of Moses, and he reads this Torah before the, the entire people, and the people are shocked to learn that there is such a Torah, and they find in the Torah uh, laws, for example, Sukkot, to build Sukkot on the holiday of Sukkot, and they go out and do it for the first time since the days of Joshua bin Nun, right? So, the assumption of these scholars in the 19th century was that Judaism begins then. It begins during this Persian period, around the 5th century before the Common Era. And since then, we have large-scale observance of the laws of the Torah. What I'm doing in my book is I'm asking, is it so? Is that really the case, that we have observance of Judaism from this period of time and onward, uh, or, or perhaps not? What is, the, what is the actual evidence that we have? The physical evidence the, you're talking about. So both, when you say physical evidence, meaning a material remains, such as archaeology, absolutely, and also 
textual evidence. So in other words, things that people are writing about, uh, which might indicate that ordinary people are keeping the laws of the Torah. Can you give me some examples of that? Are you talking about what letters or other kind of documents? So, so absolutely. So, so, so let me maybe uh, spell out the methodology of the book, and then we can get into into a bit more details. What I do, as you mentioned, uh, I, I approach this like an archaeological dig. So we start an archaeological dig. We start at the surface level, modern. You know, we start digging in the ground and we start finding tuna cans and Coca Cola bottles. And as we dig deeper we find more and more ancient uh, artifacts. I'm doing the same thing here in the book. I start from a period of time when we know that there was Judaism, that ordinary people were keeping the laws of the Torah. And what I show throughout the book is that the first century of the common era was just such a time. So in the first century of the common era, we find lots of evidence that Ordinary Jews were keeping the laws of the Torah. We'll get into details, I'm sure, during the course of the conversation. Um, and then what I do is I go backwards in time from the first century of the common era. I look at the first century before the common era, the second century before the common era, the third century before the common era, and so on and so forth, backwards in time, looking for where the trail of evidence ends. So just to give a little uh, benchmark, the first century of the Common Era is, of course, when uh, Jesus would have lived and when the temple was destroyed, things of that nature. So, And then when you move backwards, what are some other historical events that people would know about? Exactly. The first century is obviously the year, around the year zero is when uh, Jesus was thought to have been born, uh, crucified around the year 30. The, The temple of Jerusalem was destroyed in the year 70, all of the Common Era. Going backwards in time, the first century before the Common Era, we have figures like Herod the Great, right, who, who rebuilt the the, the 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 second temple or refurbished the second second temple. Um, this is towards the end of the first century before the Common Era. Uh, this is the time of Augustus, Julius Caesar, and so on and so forth. Um, and as we go backwards to the second century before the Common Era. This is the time of the Hasmonean uh, dynasty. This is the time of the Hasmonean revolt, the story of Hanukkah, of course. Um, And if we go backwards even more in time, we get to the third century before the Common Era. Um, It's a little bit hard to speak about events of Jewish history that we can think of because it's this is a period of time which is kind of a black hole in Jewish history. Uh, we don't have many sources which tell us very much about it. Uh, one event which stands out to, in my mind in the third century before the Common Era, supposedly the to- this is the time when the Torah was uh, translated into Greek. The Septuagint was produced. In Egypt, right? In, e- in Egypt, right. in, in Alexandria. If we go backwards even further in time, the fourth century before the Common Era, this is the time of Alexander the Great. Uh, and we get to the fifth century before, before the Common Era. This is the time when this area of the world was controlled by the Persians. Okay, great. So now we have a map, a good chronology in our heads. And please continue. Okay, excellent. Okay, so I'm looking again from the first century of the Common Era, going backwards in time. And what I find when I look at practice after practice, prohibition after prohibition, I find that in the first century of the common era, we have lots of evidence. In the first century before the common era as well, we have evidence of many many of the, the practices based on the, the laws of the Torah. When we get into the second century before the common era, we continue to find evidence, but nothing before that. So around the middle of the second century before the common era is really the earliest evidence that we have for practice after practice, prohibition after prohibition, that 
ordinary Judeans are are keeping the laws of the Torah. Okay, you're talking about Judeans, so let's define that term as well, because there's Judeans and Israelites, and this gets confusing, I feel like. Okay, uh, fair enough. So, um, I, I use the term Judean because in scholarship there's some there's a bit of a, a debate about uh, when we can start using the term Jews, Jewish, and, and, and so on and so forth. It's a bit of a funny debate because it's about an English word, the word Jews, Jewish. The ancient words that we have don't distinguish between Jews and Judeans, right? So we have uh, in Hebrew, uh, Yehudim, uh, in uh, Aramaic, Yehudaye, in uh, Greek, Udaioi, right? They're all basically the, the same word. And it's important here to, to, to point out, to put on the table, that we have evidence for this group of people that goes way back. We have evidence that goes uh, into the, I would say, the, the first half of the first millennium BCE. So for many hundreds of years. And I'm not looking at the question of when do Jews first appear on the stage of history? When do Judeans first appear on the state of, uh, stage of history? Because we have that for many hundreds of years before we have evidence that these Jews, these Judeans, were keeping the laws of the Torah. So I'm looking at the origins of Judaism. I'm looking at the origins of when are these people that have existed for many hundreds of years, when do they begin to keep the laws of the Torah? So it's important to put that on the table that we can have Jews, Judeans, that don't know of the laws of the Torah and aren't keeping it. Right? That's not one. One is not connected per se to the other. And so, what again? What I'm looking at is when do these Judeans begin to keep the laws of the Torah on a wide scale basis? Okay, so we'll talk about you know all the evidence that, that we have. But as I was uh, considering your book, I kept thinking about um, idols, and in the first temple period you see at many archaeological sites throughout Israel, idols, idols that have been smashed, perhaps intentionally based on biblical prohibitions, or is that not something that you personally looked at for, for this study? Okay, so we have to understand that in the early days, right, before we have wide-scale observance of Torah law, um, Judeans, Israelites as well, were polytheistic. So there was a you know, a, 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 a central Judean god whose name is, you know, the Tetragrammaton. Uh, but the Judeans and Israelites were worshiping other gods as well. And this is something we find in the Hebrew Bible. We find the prophets railing against uh, Judeans and Israelites uh, worshiping foreign gods, in their eyes, foreign gods. Uh, but uh, we, so, so there clearly were people that thought that Judeans, Israelites should be worshiping one God. Uh, and obviously we find that in the Torah as well. But the one of the questions that I look at is when do we have early the earliest evidence for wide-scale observance of that, right? So again, uh, in terms of the actual evidence that we have, so I have a chapter, for example, on figural art. Figural art, so we find uh, in the second commandment of, of the Ten Commandments, a prohibition against depicting humans or animals. Graven images, right? Graven images, graven images. In the first century of the common era, that was understood to mean even secular artwork, regular profane artwork, uh, one is not to uh, depict humans or animals. And we find both 
archaeological evidence for this. So Judeans are not depicting humans or animals in any of their artwork. We have lots of, of, of artwork from the first century of the Common Era. We have mosaic floors. We have funerary art you know, on uh, coffins and ossuaries, bone boxes, uh, burial caves. We have, we have quite a bit of, of, of Judean art at this period of time. And consistently, this art does not include humans or animals. So we have geometric designs or floral designs. We almost never have humans or animals depicted. And this is true for the first century of the Common Era. It's true for the first century before the Common Era. It's true for the second century before the Common Era. Prior to this, it, it, it's we, we simply don't have this. One of the things which really stands out is the coins. So Judeans were minting coins from during quite a, a, a number of periods of time. Uh, we have Judean coins from the first century of the Common Era never depicting humans or animals. The same is true of the first century before the Common Era. The second century before the Common Era, the earliest coins we have are from, these are actually well dated, around 132 BCE, the time of John Hyrcanus I, one of the Hasmonean uh, rulers. And what really stands out with these coins is that Normally, we would assume that a coin would have the 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 um, profile profile the, the 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 picture of the ruler, right? We have that on coins today, right? Uh, and that was the case in antiquity as well. Uh, you know, coins always had the the uh, dep- the portrait of the king. On these Hasmonean coins, not only is the portrait of the king missing or the the ruler, uh, but we have what I would call a textual portrait which means that it has the, the name of the ruler, John Hyrcanus, the high priest, and the council of the Judeans. That's a lot of words to put on a small coin. And this, it takes the place of a graphic depiction. So we have a textual portrait uh, in the place of a graphic portrait. I think this really stands out. Uh, and to my mind, it's, it, it really says, it makes the statement that we are not going to depict a human on our coins. We don't have this in any earlier period. So in the earlier coins, coins that we have from the the 3rd century before the Common Era, from the 4th century before the Common Era, on every single coin minted by Judeans in Judea, we have figural art. And in fact, some of these coins have not only figural art, but actually foreign gods. Uh, So we have, for example, Athena, uh, the the Greek goddess, uh, the owl of Athena. There's one coin that has the name of the high priest, the Judean high priest, Yohanan HaKohen, it says in Hebrew, Yohanan the, the, the priest. And in the middle of that, that coin is the owl of Athena. So not only do we have not a lack of uh, figural art, we actually have figural art and actually foreign gods depicted. So this is, th- this is these are the, uh, artifactual finds that we find from these periods prior to the Hasmonean period. That is so fascinating. You know, a lot of people uh, theorize, at least, that the mitzvot, that the commandments are to separate Jews from other peoples. And are you seeing that in terms of the physical evidence that you have actually uh, collected in your going down through the ages? 
Because it sounds like in the coin that you pointed out of uh, Hyrcanus, he was being very dafka, as we say in Hebrew, who's being very intentional of saying, no, I'm going to actually observe this commandment, and I am different, and I am the Torah true Jew, and I'm the one you should be following because I'm your true leader, etc., etc. And so if you're talking about the other you know, commandments, the Jewish laws that you're searching for evidence for, is any of that also so very intentional and very different from the other people who lived next to them? Yeah, so 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 absolutely. So we have, we, we can talk about another example, uh, purity laws. So we have, again, when we talk about the first century of the common era, we have a large amount of evidence that Judeans are keeping the purity laws. We have textual evidence, but we also have archaeological evidence. So for example, we have uh, hundreds of stepped and plastered pools throughout the country, everywhere where there are Judeans living. And these were clearly being used as uh, immersion pools, ritual immersion pools for, for, for purity purposes, what came to be known uh, as mikvaot. We also have at this period of time, large scale use of stone vessels, vessels made out of chalk, and these were being used by Judeans because they understood, according to the rules of Leviticus, that a stone does not become impure. Right? Pottery, according to Leviticus 11, if it becomes impure, you have to break it. Uh, but stone is not listed amongst the things that, that one has to either break or wash. And it was understood that stone, therefore, doesn't become impure. Judeans at this time are, are, are making vessels out of stone and using them on a wide-scale basis. There's a very clear distinction between Judean sites where we find these immersion pools and these stone vessels and non-Judean sites where we don't find the, 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 these finds. Both of these phenomena begin, they first emerge in the second century before the common era, during the Hesmonean period. Prior to this time, there's no evidence that Judeans are keeping these rules. <laughs> The world we live in isn't perfect, but it doesn't get better on its own. That's where the work of activists comes in. Whether it's environmental justice, animal rights, or disability advocacy, there are people all around the world striving to make it a better place. That's where All About Change comes in. Host Jay Ruderman talks with activists about how they do what they do and what inspires them to keep going. Because activism is all about change. Listen to All About Change wherever you get your podcasts. Okay, so let's talk about the dietary laws, because that's that's a big one, actually. And I know you're a data guy. And one of the things that archaeologists like to do when they're excavating is to measure the proportion of, for example, pig bones to goat bones to uh, fish bones and what kinds of fish and all of that kind of thing. And that dates back much prior to the Hasmonean times. And people have often used them to say, to draw conclusions on who lived where. What do you say about that? Okay, excellent. So I have a chapter on the dietary laws. And we have to be, so first of all, a methodological uh, point that needs to be made. We When we look at evidence of uh, animal bones that we find in archaeological excavations. This tells us what people are eating and what people are not eating. 
There's a difference, though, between people not eating something and there being a taboo against that food. I'll give you an example from today, okay? Um, do you eat meat? Are you a meat eater? I do. Okay. So if you go into a supermarket here in Israel, I think it's it's certainly the same thing in the United States and in most places in Europe, as far as I know. And you look for, if you look for beef and chicken, you'll find it. Um, if you look for goat meat, I think you'll have a hard time finding it. Have you ever seen goat meat in any supermarkets here in Israel? Maybe at a butcher shop, but not a supermarket. Have you seen it? I haven't seen it at a butcher shop either. It's I've never come across it. Now, people here in Israel and in the United States tend to not eat goat meat. I don't think there's a taboo against eating goat. I would have no problem eating goat. I think most people uh, in the street would, wouldn't have a problem, but you don't come across it. And the reasons for that are probably economical, they're probably ecological. I don't, I don't know why. Cultural. I don't think it's so much cultural. I think for whatever reason, farmers aren't raising goats for meat. And that's, that's just the way it is. But it, that doesn't mean that people are abstaining from eating goat meat. So there's no taboo against eating. There's taboo against eating puppies or eating cats, but there's no taboo against eating goats. And so again, going back to your question, the fact that we don't find certain kinds of consumption of certain kinds of animals does not necessarily mean that there's a taboo against that. It could There could be other reasons, economic, ecological, and so on and so forth, for why farmers decide to raise a certain animal or not. What is the data? So when we look in the, the first century of the common era, we don't have uh, pig bones uh, at Judean sites. We do have them at non-Judean sites. Uh, now, again, that is consistent with the idea that Judeans aren't eating pig because of Torah law, but it's not necessarily um, proof of it. What we do have at this time is texts which tell us that everyone knew that Judeans were abstaining from eating pig because of Torah law. So we have, for example, uh, Roman authors that are that are telling jokes about the Judeans that they don't eat pig. Um, one of the jokes is told about King Herod. The joke, supposedly uh, Augustus, the Emperor Augustus himself told this joke that uh, he would rather be Herod's pig rather than his son. Because Herod's pig, chances are that Herod wouldn't have, he wouldn't have <laughs> slaughtered because... You know, but, but his son, Herod, was a nasty guy, and he, he killed all of his family members. Uh, so now, a joke like that would have fallen flat if everyone who heard the joke didn't know that Judeans were abstaining from eating pig because of, because of the Torah. So clearly, at this time, Judeans were keeping the laws of the Torah with regard to, to, to abstaining from eating pig. In earlier periods of time, uh, when we get to periods before the Hasmonean period, the, the picture becomes a bit more complex. We have uh, we have lack of pig bones at um, so we, when we get into the the Iron Age, we have lack of pig bones at sites in the highlands of Judea. We have pig bones in the northern highland sites, the the Kingdom of Israel. We have pig bones in Philistine urban sites. We have a lack of pig bones in Philistine rural sites. At Canaanite sites, going back even earlier, we have a lack of pig bones. Um, and at 
sites from uh, from the Bronze Age, when there was an the late Bronze Age, when there was an Egyptian presence in the land, we have pig bones where there were Egyptians. So clearly, farmers in at different times and different places uh, were making decisions about whether to raise or not to raise pigs, probably for economic ecological reasons, which have nothing to do with the Torah. Right? We have lack of pig bones at Canaanite sites. Um, you know, a thousand years before anyone would have imagined the Torah being existing. So a lack of pig bones is not necessarily evidence that people are keeping the laws of the Torah. This is something that we have to be very careful about. Okay, so we have a whole bunch of different pieces that we've discussed so far, and let's wrap it up into some kind of unifying theory. What are you getting across in the conclusion of your book? Okay, good. So the the book is actually a very data-driven book, and the first... Uh, six chapters are exactly as we described, where I take the first century of the common era as the baseline, the benchmark, and then we go backwards in time. Um, and what that provides for us is, and you'll excuse me for my Latin, a terminus antiquem. And what that means is that at the earliest evidence we have, the, where the trail of evidence ends, that provides the terminus antiquem, the the, the period of time when or before which Judaism must have emerged. Um, and I'm trying to be very, very precise here in, in what the, the data provides and what the data does not provide. So we know that lack of evidence is not evidence of absence, or absence of evidence is not evidence of absence. And, and what that means, or it's not necessarily evidence of absence, what that means is the fact that we don't have evidence for wide-scale Torah observance before the second century, before the common era, does not necessarily mean that Judaism began then. It could be that Jews were keeping the laws of the Torah on a wide-scale basis in earlier periods, in the third century, the fourth century before the common era, but the evidence simply hasn't survived. That's always that's always a possibility. What I do in the final chapter is I, I look at contextual evidence from the period before our terminus antiquem. So I'm looking at evidence um, surrounding this question to see what was going on with Judeans in these earlier periods. And what I find is that what's commonly thought of as the beginning of Judaism in the Persian period in the fifth century before the common era, not only do we not find evidence of wide-scale Torah observance, we find negative evidence. So I already gave you the examples of the coins that have uh, that have uh, foreign gods depicted on them. We also have texts from places like Elephantine. Elephantine is an island in the Nile River in southern Egypt, where there was a Judean colony that was living there. And they've left over numerous texts, numerous documents, which have survived because Egypt is a, a dry area and papyri uh, are able to survive uh, in this area. And these documents uh, paint a picture of a Judean society which knows nothing of the Torah and which is actually breaking lots of the laws that we find in the Torah. So for example, one thing that really stands out is that they've built a temple to the Judean God in Egypt. Now, we know, of course, that according to Deuteronomy, the temple is supposed to be in only one place, which was eventually understood to be Jerusalem, and building a temple in Egypt is a no-no. They 
are worshiping the Judean God, but they're also worshiping other gods, or at least acknowledging other gods. So they're taking oaths to gods aside from the Judean God. They are um, they're giving monies. They're they're donating monies to other gods uh, aside from the Judean God. They're naming their children both by the name of the Judean God and other gods as well. These people are clearly unaware of the existence of the Torah. They're certainly not keeping the laws of the Torah. We find a similar situation in Babylonia at this time. Okay, so we're talking about the fifth century before the common era, the time when scholars generally think that Judaism first emerged. So we have all of this evidence of non-observance. One other thing I'll throw out, um, at this time in excavations in Jerusalem, you, you mentioned uh, faunal evidence, uh, animal bones. We find fish bones at this time of a fish, species of fish, which are prohibited in the Torah. So for example, we have catfish and shark um, bones and cartilage, which are found uh, from the fifth century, fourth century before the common era. They're prohibited in the Torah, but we find them in Jerusalem. So not only do we not have evidence of observance, we have actually negative evidence, evidence of non-observance, which would suggest to me that this period of time, the Persian period, is not the best period of time to be seeking the, 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 the emergence of wide-scale observance of the Torah. So moving forward in time, let's see, okay, the next period. The next period after the conquest of Alexander the Great is the early Hellenistic period. Um, and following that, we have the Hasmonean Revolt and uh, the late Hellenistic period. I think the, both of these periods of time are a much more likely period when Judaism first emerged. And towards the end of the book, I make the suggestion, well, maybe we'll, we'll, we can wrap up with this. Uh, I make the suggestion that perhaps it was, in fact, the Hasmoneans that were the ones to adopt the Torah as the law of the land. So again, the Torah might have been, very likely was around for many hundreds of years, but wasn't well known. It wasn't something that the masses knew about necessarily. It was the Hasmoneans perhaps that are the ones that decided to adopt the Torah as the law of the land and to spread knowledge of the Torah, to spread observance of the Torah uh, from the, the second century before the common era and, and onward. We don't have evidence for this, that the, it was the Hasmoneans that did this, but what we do have evidence for is that the Hasmoneans did this with peoples that they conquered. So we know, for example, that the Hasmoneans conquered, John Hyrcanus that we had mentioned before, conquered the Edomians, the Edomim, in the south of the country. This was a non-Judean ethnic group that, that was non-Judean. They, they worshipped a god named Kos, and the Hasmoneans conquered them around the year 112 BCE and enforced the laws of the Torah on the Edomians. We would today say that they forced conversion on the Edomians. But th what the sources tell us, we have textual sources which tell us this, Josephus and others, that tell us that uh, the Hasmoneans forced them to circumcise and to keep the laws of the Torah. We know that, the Has that after John Hyrcanus I, uh, John um, Judah Aristobulus I conquered a peoples in the north called the Eturians. And he did the same thing. He forced them to circumcise and to keep the laws of the Torah. So this is a sort of modus operandi of the Hasmoneans, that they're enforcing the laws of the Torah on the peoples that they conquered. I think it's not too much of a stretch of the imagination 
to suggest that the perhaps the earlier Hasmoneans, let's say perhaps Simon or Jonathan or one of the early, Judah Maccabee perhaps, did this very thing with the Judeans themselves and brought the laws of the Torah to the Judeans, enforced the laws of the Torah on the Judeans themselves, and with that we would have the, the emergence of what, what I would call Judaism. Of course, since we're recording during the Passover uh, vacation, I need to ask you what is the evidence for that story? Okay, good. So, uh, we have, so let's, using our methodology, the first century of the common era, we have lots of evidence, not any archaeological evidence per se, but textual evidence that uh, Judeans are uh, keeping the Passover. They are abstaining from uh, eating leaven uh, products, and they are eating uh, unleavened bread. They are eating the Paschal uh, sacrifice, uh, and so on and so forth. Just as an example, in the Gospels, we have a story about a famous Jew, Jesus and his disciples, who had a uh, Last Supper, which, at least according to the Synoptic Gospels, uh, was was this what we would call today the Seder. You know, the the uh, eating the Paschal lamb with unleavened bread, and so on and so forth. Um, so we have this evidence from the first century of the Common Era. We have some evidence from uh, first century before the Common Era, let's say. Prior to this time, we do not have evidence that Judeans were keeping the Passover or the Festival of Unleavened Bread uh, in any wide-scale wide manner. Oftentimes, scholars speak about a so-called Passover papyrus from Elephantine. And we had mentioned the, the, the island in the Nile River. And this papyrus supposedly speaks about Passover. It supposedly speaks about uh, refraining from un eating leaven products on Passover. It supposedly speaks about eating the Passover sacrifice, eating unleavened bread, and so on and so forth, hiding away leaven products in the house. It seems to me that the that the Judeans living in Elephantine, according to this papyrus, were keeping the laws of the Torah. And this papyrus is actually quite well dated to 419 BCE. So we have, have a real, really good dating on, on this papyrus. Why do you keep using the word supposedly, though? Okay, so why do I say supposedly? Uh, the, I, I say that the, the, the papyrus is the so-called Passover papyrus. The problem is that more than half of the papyrus is missing. And the papyrus has been reconstructed on the basis of what we find in the Torah. And it just so happens that all of the parts that talk about Passover <laughs> are in the reconstructed parts. So it's fair enough that scholars will you know, reconstruct a papyrus that's, that is not well-preserved on the basis of the Torah. You know, fair enough. We, we can try that exercise. The problem is we can't then take the, that reconstruction and use that as evidence that the Torah was, was, was well known, right? That's called circular reasoning. So we, we can't do that. Uh, so I, I say it's the so-called Passover papyrus because once we remove all of the reconstructed parts of it, it no longer is talking about Passover. Really fascinating. Thank you so much for all of this. Much food for thought, even kosher food for thought. Thanks for having me, Amanda. Pleasure.
with all this talk of the Hasmoneans, I feel like I should start frying some latkes. Kosher for Passover latkes. That should be a thing. This podcast was produced and edited by the Podwaves. Thanks, as always, to my podcast partner, Jessica Steinberg, and to Mick Weinstein, who definitely relates to the joys of cleaning. Have a comment about this or other episodes of What Matters Now? Email us at podcast at timesofisrael.com. Look for more What Matters Now episodes and subscribe wherever you find your podcasts.